The reading for our sermon text this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 64, verses 1 to 9. And the prophet prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in, their, in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness, righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord, we do give you praise and thanks for this day. Lord, we thank you, Father, for a new season, a new time of the year, Lord, where we remember, Lord, what it means to hope on you and your return as we prepare to celebrate your first advent. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord God, for calling us out of our sleep and into the gathered body here at Christ Community Church, Lord, for worship. And so, Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, as we consider the words, Father, of the prophecy that you inspired, Lord, through Isaiah, we pray, God, that you would open our minds and our hearts and our ears to hear and to believe and to understand and help us, Lord, to take hold of you, to grasp upon you as Isaiah prays. And we pray all of these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, as you have no doubt noticed, not only from Connor stealing a little bit of my thunder, I'm kidding, or from from Chris giving the really cheesy joke this morning, so I don't have to do either of those now. Uh, no, uh, as you've no doubt noticed, we are again in the season of Advent, right? The season, as Connor reminded us, the season of arrival. This is what Advent means. The colors of our sanctuary have changed. They've gone from green to purple. Our music has even changed. The way we do our music has changed. We just sang the first verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We'll sing the whole song over the course of the season of Advent. Candles now accompany our liturgy, as we just saw one being lit. And along with these changes, we are reminded that the season of Advent is marked by waiting. We are waiting for the arrival of Christmas. 
The days have grown shorter and the nights have grown colder. And so we are waiting for the arrival of longer and warmer days. And after what feels like 26 weeks of waiting through ordinary time, Advent calls us to wait just a little bit more. My wife can attest to this, but, but I'm a pretty impatient guy. I don't know, she might shake her head, I don't know. I feel like I'm pretty impatient, right? I don't like to wait on anything, right? I don't like to wait in the line at the grocery store. I don't like to wait at a traffic light. And I definitely don't like to wait in front of the microwave, all right? I want what I want, and I want it yesterday, right? I've grown accustomed to living in a time where life comes at you fast, as Ferris Bueller says in Ferris uh, Matthew Broderick says in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But our God does not work that way. Yahweh works in his own timing. He works in his own ways. And he works at his own pace. And so after 26 weeks of ordinary Sundays, Sundays where we have been counting, I'm going to spoil it now, counting until we can start celebrating again. That's one of the reasons why we count. Not the only reason. But... We've now spent 26 weeks counting until the celebratory season could start again. So I'm ready to get going. I'm impatient. But Advent intentionally slows us down before we rush headlong into the seasons of celebration. Advent slows us down so that we can properly meditate and contemplate upon the celebrations that we are about to experience. And that is really the purpose of the entire celebratory season to remind us that our God is not merely a God who wants to renew our minds, but who also wants to renew our whole selves. God is a God who wants us to experience him with our whole person. And so, as, as Connor also said, Advent is also known as a little Lent. But unlike the fasting of Lent, Advent reminds us that we have all, as the church, collectively been forced into a fast together. We have been forced into a fast from our bridegroom. So this is why I'm convinced that Christ, who understands us and understands our longing and our desire for him, gave us the church and gave us the sacraments. These not only serve as a reminder, but they serve as a tangible reality of his love for us. They remind us that he is a God who wants us to experience him with our whole selves. The church reminds us that while Christ is bodily seated at the right hand of the Father, he is still present with us in one another as we experience and participate in life and worship together. Our baptisms serve as our physical sign of our rebirth in Christ, but also as a sign of his mercy and his grace by making us part of his beloved bride. And the Eucharist serves as our weekly reminder of our beloved who loves us but also our beloved who is absent and also our beloved who will return. Also, as Connor mentioned, we focus in Advent on the three Advents of Christ. We focus on his incarnation, on his return, and on his arrival, his Advent into our own lives and experiences. And now our text for today from Isaiah 64 speaks directly to all three of these Advents. And so Advent is defined by waiting on the arrival of God. And in Advent, we celebrate and remember the arrival of God incarnate in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
as Walton and Katie mentioned when they were lighting the candle a moment ago, the first Sunday of Advent is usually always focused on the second Advent of Christ. And so as such, we are reminded to continue to do what we know to do. We stay awake, we stay alert, we pray, we watch, and we wait for his return. We wait in hope, we wait in anticipation, as Walton and Katie just read from Mark 13. And so as we begin this season of arrival of Christ, let's take a few moments to consider how Isaiah encourages us in this waiting, in this prayer of his in Isaiah 64. There are repeating patterns in Scripture. We've talked about this quite a bit. I've mentioned it. I know it's been brought up in Sunday school and on Wednesday nights as well. But there are repeating patterns throughout Scripture that help us to discern what God has inspired in his word. And so we've been studying through the whole book of Isaiah together in Sunday school over the course of this entire calendar year. And as we've been doing that, we've noticed that one of the key repeating patterns in Scripture is this repetition of exile and then return, or exile and exodus. Now I'm stealing some of Connor's thunder. (laughs) So we made our way through the Gospel of Matthew over ordinary time this year. And as we did that, we constantly saw that Christ is leading his people into a new and final exodus. And as Connor has regularly reminded us in Sunday school, the word exodus is a word that simply means the way out. In John chapter 14, responding to Thomas, Jesus tells his disciples that he is the way. The book of Acts tells us that the first Christians were called followers of the way. So when it comes to the advents of Christ, both his first, his second, and our personal advents in our lives, we have been and we are being shown the way. We are to guide one another along the way, and we are to look for the way out by keeping alert as we wait for his return. And so here in Isaiah 64, Isaiah 64 is the ending of of a prayer that begins in Isaiah 63, verse 7. But in this prayer, Isaiah is lamenting the coming judgment of the Lord upon his people. I know this came up in Sunday school this morning in Isaiah 50. Particularly the Lord's judgment upon his people for their sin. They are where they are because they sinned. So Isaiah understands clearly, he says, it is is their sin that has caused this judgment of exile into Babylon. Their sin has made them unclean. And their personal attempts at righteousness, he tells us in verse 6, are like a polluted garment. They're like a disgusting cloth. In the Hebrew, this is a lot more visceral than we like to make it in our post-Victorian niceties. This is understood to be like a toilet cloth. It's a It's a lady's toilet cloth, and you take that to where it goes. That's what this means in the original Hebrew. It is a filthy, gross, disgusting thing. This is what our righteousness is before God. And we're no different today than Isaiah and the people of Israel in his own day. Our plight is the same. We long for the coming of God. And we rightly ask him to look upon us and to forgive and forget our sins. And so notice the first elements of that Isaiah, notice these elements that Isaiah uses, particularly in these first five verses, that draws our attention to both the first exodus, but also the final exodus of God's people through Christ Jesus. He says this in just the first 
part of the first sentence. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You can feel the plight in this prayer. This word rend in Hebrew is the word karat. This is a great word. Karat means to tear or to rip or to cut. Karat is also a covenantal word. In Genesis chapter 15, we read that of God's covenant with Abram, where Yahweh cuts a covenant with him by having him cut multiple animals in half, and then the Lord passes through them. And then in Genesis 17, Yahweh then literally cuts a covenant into the body of Abram by giving him the covenant of circumcision and then renaming him as Abraham. And so Isaiah does not choose this word karat by accident. He's remembering how Yahweh has covenanted with his people. And in his world, with Babylon on the horizon to take them yet again into exile and into slavery, surely their only solution is for Yahweh to remember his covenant by ripping open the heavens and coming down to intervene, just like he did for his covenant people who were enslaved in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Yahweh tells Moses, he says, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. Isaiah is appealing then in this prayer to the God of the Exodus to intervene once again. And Isaiah's cry is the same cry as the church. In a world that appears to be coming apart at the seams, in a world where God appears to be distant, in a world where our righteousness is nothing more than toilet rags, salvation can only be found if God himself tears open the heavens and comes down and intervenes for us as his covenant people. And God answered Isaiah's prayer in the incarnation of Christ. He did split the heavens, and he came down in the first advent. And he will do so again at the second advent of Christ, when we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory and sending out his angels to the four winds to gather his covenant people from the ends of the earth. And so notice what Isaiah says then about how creation itself reacts when God does intervene. Listen to what he says here. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Isaiah remembers that during the Exodus, the mountains did indeed quake at the presence of Yahweh God upon them. Again, in Exodus 19, verse 18, we read this. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Think of a volcanic eruption. This is what is happening on this mountain, but worse. In Scripture, mountains or the high places, we read about this particularly in the Psalms and through the Book of Kings and the other, and the other histories, mountains and high places are understood to be places where man meets with the divine. We see this with Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. We see it with Moses on Mount Sinai, like we just read. We see it in the temple where it is built. We even see it with Elijah. And we see it at the transfiguration of our Lord. 
And at the coming of Christ, the high places themselves will quake at his presence. Christ has come down, and the mountains have been reduced to a trembling mess at his presence, especially at his death. Listen to what Matthew says in Matthew 21:51. This is 27:51. This is only in Matthew's gospel. The earth shook and the rocks were split the moment that Jesus died. But notice again what was in our candle reading today from Mark 13 that Walton and Katie read. Christ will tear open the heavens and come down again. And again, creation will tremble at his presence. The sun will be darkened. The moon will no longer give its light. The stars will fall out of the heavens. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. Zechariah 14 proclaims this, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, and it shall be split in two from east to west. And then Yahweh will come and all of his holy ones with him. And similar to creation quaking in his presence, Isaiah shows us here that the element of fire, which has always been seen as a sign of the presence of God, will be the element that will serve to make his arrival known to the world. Again, he says this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, and that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Again, in Exodus 19.18, we read this, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. I've never heated pottery. So I had to Google this, right? I know that uh, we, we do have uh, some friends here that, that do this type of work, but I had to Google it because I just didn't know. And one resource I found said that to properly heat and harden clay to make pottery, a kiln needs to be anywhere between seven, uh, 1,750 degrees to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really, really hot. And so... As he's praying this, as he's praying, Lord, rip open the heavens, come down, make, the, make creation tremble at your presence, make your fire of your presence known so that the nations and, the, and, the, and your adversaries will know that you are here. What is he praying? He's praying out of his experience of God and out of his remembrance of how God has intervened for his covenant people in the past. Here in this prayer, Isaiah is recalling his own experience from chapter 6, where he sees Yahweh surrounded by the seraphim, by the fiery ones. He's recalling his experience of that same chapter where he had a fiery coal placed on his lips. And then we read, this atones for his sins. He's also remembering the experience of God's people by making himself known through the fire of his presence. In Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of a bush that does not burn. And after they left Egypt, Yahweh goes before his people in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah calls upon Yahweh and he answers with fire that falls out of heaven upon the altar that he had built. And it consumes not only the sacrifice, but the stones and the water themselves. And he proves that the priests of Baal are not made up of God, that these men are not calling upon gods carved out of stone or out of clay or molded from metal. These are not the gods that will hear, but rather it is always and only the God of the Exodus that hears and answers. 
But something more is going on here in this understanding of fire. Fire will make God's presence and name known to his adversaries and to the nations. Again, Isaiah prays that you would rend the heavens and come down so that the fire of your presence will make your name known and that they might tremble at your presence. Remember, last week when we were looking at the the parable of the sheep and the goats, the prophecy of the sheep and the goats, Christ tells us that when he returns, he will return in judgment. And for those who have joyfully worked righteousness and remembered his ways, as Isaiah prays here in verse 5, for those, the presence of God will be a joyous experience. But for those who have rejected his ways and ignored his ways, the fire of God's presence is a terrifying thing. God proclaims in Malachi 4, he says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of hosts. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under your feet on the day when I act. John the baptizer proclaims that this is the work of the Lord Jesus himself. In Luke's gospel, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. On this first Sunday of Advent, we are to be encouraged that both in his incarnation and in his second Advent, Christ is leading his people into the final exodus. When we cry out to God to tear open the heavens and come down, we are praying that he would make his presence known, not only to us, but to the whole world. And when the fire of the presence of God arrives in the person of Christ Jesus coming on the clouds like a son of man, then the world will know, and his name will be made known to the nations, and they will tremble. But we as his people who have remembered his way, God tells us, in that same passage in Malachi, that we will go out like calves leaping from a stall. And then here in Isaiah 64, there's one way in which we can be assured that that day will be a joyous day where we are like calves leaping from a stall instead of a terrifying day where we become stubble and burned up. And that is through waiting. We are to wait upon the Lord. Isaiah tells us this, he says, again, that you would rend the heavens and come down, the mountains might quake at your presence, that your fire would kindle brushwood, and and that it would cause water to boil, your adversaries would know your name, the nations might tremble at your presence. And then he says this, and when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. And from of old, no one has heard, nor perceived by the ear, No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. This word awesome in verse 3 here, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, this is a word in Hebrew that is related to the verb to fear. It's a similar word. It's not the same word, but it's very similar. So when God revealed his presence through the plagues in Egypt or by dividing the Red Sea in the Exodus, His actions proved that he is a God who hears and a God who acts for his people. And he is a God to be feared. For ancient Israel, the exodus was their salvation event. The constant reminder as you make your way through the entire Old Testament, the constant reminder for the people of Israel 
is to remember the exodus. You're falling away from God. Remember what he did. Remember the awesome works that he did. Remember the works that he did on your behalf. Remember the works that he did in order to redeem you from slavery and to deliver you into his presence. And Isaiah proclaims here in verse 4, he says, There is no other God who has ever done anything remotely similar to the intervention of Yahweh for his people in the Exodus. No other God is like this because no other God has revealed himself like Yahweh has revealed himself. And this is especially true and fully true in the incarnate Christ Jesus. John proclaims in his lofty gospel, prologue to his gospel, he says this, that in the incarnation, Christ has made the Father known. Christ has manifested the person, the character, and the attitude of God fully and completely to the world. And so while we know that God does indeed act on behalf of his people, Isaiah reminds us here that there is one condition that we are always to remember. We are to wait. God acts on behalf of those who wait for him, he says in verse 4. Which brings us full circle to the purpose of the season of Advent, the call to wait. So how are we to wait in Advent? Because waiting, as I have already at least illustrated in my own experience, is not easy. Two minutes on the microwave is two minutes too long. It should be ready. (laughs) So how are we to wait in Advent? We have been waiting for almost 2,000 years for the Lord to return. Lord, come quickly. How long do we have to wait, O Lord? Isaiah tells us here in verse 5 and verse 8. I'll read them for you. He says this. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness and those who remember your ways. Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. But we are all the work of your hand. We wait by remembering the ways of God. We wait by working righteousness. We wait by remembering that God is our father and that he is the potter and we are the clay and the work of his hands. Waiting on God is what it means to remember God's ways. Waiting for God is marked by a life that does not resent him because he is patient. But rather it is a life that is joyful because it remembers that he was patient towards you so that you might believe in Christ. Isaiah encourages us in chapter 40 of of his book, he says that those who wait upon Yahweh shall renew their strength. Hosea tells us that we must wait on God always. And James encourages us to be patient until the Lord's coming. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. And so, beloved of Christ, wait in hope. Wait in anticipation. Wait and follow Christ, our exodus, our way out. Come to the table and give thanks for the accomplished work of his first advent while waiting with eager anticipation for his second. O Lord Jesus, rend the heavens and come down again.